Hello, and welcome to New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I will be your host today. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Melissa Wild, who is Professor of Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, focusing on questions of religion and inequality. We're discussing her 2020 monograph, Birth Control Battles, How Race and Class Divided American Religion, which demonstrates that support for contraception among some of America's most prominent religious groups was tied to white supremacist views of race, immigration, and manifest destiny. Dr. Wild, welcome to the program, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Diana. Uh, So to begin, uh, could you talk a bit about your research background and how this project originated? Sure. Um, My first major research project actually looked at the Second Vatican Council and the Roman Catholic Church. Um, And I was interested in that project in understanding why why and how religious change happens. So why a religious organization would undertake progressive change. And in order to do that, I looked at and compared reforms that passed and failed at the council. And the major reform that failed during Vatican II, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, had to do with birth control. And it was actually a very close, almost, passage. And through my research on birth control in the Catholic Church, I became aware of the fact that much of the resistance to birth control among in some Catholic circles seemed to be because of a memory of anti-Catholicism within the eugenics movement and the relationship between eugenics and birth control. And so I became intrigued about whether that was accurate and the extent to which that could actually explain modern divisions on issues associated with sex and gender in general. And so that's how I started digging into why some American religious groups liberalized on birth control and others didn't early in the 20th century. And that ultimately became my book, Birth Control Battles, How Race and Class Divided American Religion. Uh, Now, you say in the introduction to the book that many will likely find the argument put forward in this book surprising, if not shocking. Why is that? And were you initially surprised by your findings? That's a great question. So I, I wasn't surprised by my findings that the early liberalizers were eugenicists, um, because it, I had a hunch that that was the case because of my research on Vatican II. But even so, I was really found myself often shocked and surprised by the the extent of the eugenicist sentiment and the open support for and belief in extremely racist statements about the importance of biology and heredity um, for things like crime and intelligence and um, even being a good religious individual. Um, And so that was certainly, I, I mean, I often would be sitting in my office with my mouth wide open when I was reading through quotes or, or putting them in the book. Um, but in terms of the overall argument, I know that many people have a really difficult time understanding that what is progressive in one time can be seen as very anti-progressive in another, and that groups 
that have incredibly strong identities associated with social justice today could have been so deeply racist in their past. And so I think that's, and that, in fact, to even go further, that what many people would see as a feminist stance today and embrace as a part of their overall social justice frame, and I shouldn't say people, I should say religious groups, because that's really the level of the analysis, um, would be just absolutely shocked to realize that the initial reason they're denomination moved toward a feminist stance really had to do had nothing to do with women's rights and was really about controlling non-white fertility uh, and I, I absolutely agree that I think this will be a, a surprising and probably quite challenging book but still very important to know that the full history of this movement uh, now you introduce a key term for understanding your argument which is complex religion. Uh, could you talk about what that means and why it's important to understanding the history of the American potential debates? Sure. So by complex religion, I really mean a very simple idea, which is that religion intersects with other systems of inequality. And it comes from me being deeply influenced by theories of intersectionality. Um, and the argument is basically that religion has always been a structuring structure in the in in society or it has always been um, a marker of both of all three of class race and ethnicity and so especially early in the 20th century being catholic was really associated with being poor um, being non-white and being an immigrant um, and I think a lot of even sociologists, certainly a lot of Americans don't acknowledge the extent to which they often use religion as a proxy for class or race or ethnicity. And so I, I liken it to, I think people can see that more clearly when we talk today about Islam. And so are Muslims in the U S white, the very fact that you can pose that question, it immediately is, I think a very good example about, um, about the ways in which those structures intersect. And so by, by pointing the term complex religion, I'm just trying to get scholars of intersectionality to understand and acknowledge that religion is an important structure of inequality, that it intersects with them. And I'm trying to get more importantly, or, or kind of more fundamentally for my research, I'm trying to get sociologists of religion to actually take religious inequality seriously. Um, it's been, it was really a key part of the field um, when it was formed of sociology, people understood that, for example, Episcopalians were wealthy and, um, you know, Baptists were not. But it's something that has so fallen out of sociology that I find many, many colleagues who don't study religion respond to my work by saying, are you serious? That does, does class really intersect with a religious group today? And I've done other research um, looking at that relationship, and it's religious inequality today is still larger than the gender pay gap, and evil, and even in some circumstances, for example, the racial education disadvantage. So it's it's very large, and it's just something that people haven't really thought a lot about in recent years, and and so that is, um, and because it comes, it came from my realization that. 
you really couldn't understand which groups liberalized on birth control and which did not, unless you were able to understand the ways in which religion intersected with both class, race, race, and ethnicity at the time. So being Catholic at that time or being Jewish was 100% correlated with being seen as non-white and being seen as kind of a poor and dirty immigrant. And that's really... Um, while students of the eugenics movement have noticed that and acknowledged the importance of religion for eugenesis, it's really not something that even race scholars have, have dealt with um, thoroughly. So that's where uh, the argument comes from. It makes me think of the this quotation, and I can't remember who said it, that the most segregated place in America is church on Sunday morning, right? That's right. Uh, in terms King. of the intersection. <laughs> Oh, it wasn't. Okay. I should have known that. Yeah, no, but it's true. Um, and it's now, true. Uh, um, now, you describe quite a complex and labor-intensive process of data collection, organization, and analysis. Um, could you discuss your primary research question and how you went about answering it? Sure. Um, yeah, I should say, I want like to start by just saying the research that went into the book took me almost 10 years to complete. Um it was a hugely labor-intensive project. Um, I, I could not have done it without the help of more than 60 research assistants. Um, and that's because when I went about first articulating and figuring out how to answer the question of why did some groups liberalize on birth control before others, I knew I didn't want to study only the groups that liberalized. And I knew I didn't want to study... Um, So I didn't want to study only the most progressive. I didn't want to study only the most prominent. Um, So I I spent a lot of time thinking about and and thinking through how to create what I saw as a representative sample of American religious groups. And representative is probably the wrong word in terms of, as a social scientist, usually representative samples mean that everyone in a population has an equal chance of being in that population. And my sample doesn't do that. Um, instead, what I ended up doing was creating a sample that included any major American religious group that had more than 400,000 members in 1926. So I ended up with 31 different religious groups through a process of just that basic threshold in terms of size, which I found was necessary because um, my primary data source would be that religious group's periodical, um, which is not something that I necessarily new at the beginning. I could talk about that later. But in order for that group to have a a robust enough presence for their beliefs to be recorded nearly 100 years later, that was, I found that that was a pretty important threshold, that below that threshold, groups either didn't tend to have periodicals or publications, or they didn't, um, they just didn't survive because there weren't enough members to make sure that, you know, they thought they were important enough to give to libraries or something like that. Um, so once I had my sample, um, and I felt like I could talk about the American religious field as a whole, which, you know, there are certainly caveats to most smaller groups, groups are not in my sample. Um, and, and so I can't talk about some of the smaller, perhaps more interesting groups that people, um, might know of that said, I did include some groups that were too small to fall under that threshold early in the 20th century, but that have gotten bigger. So I did include Jehovah's Witnesses. 
um, Seventh-day Adventists and the Assemblies of God, even though they were not large groups um, initially, because they're much more prominent today, because I did want to be able to talk about how this is relevant to, you know, the situation today. Um, But once I got that sample, then it became a matter of trying to figure out how to systematically study each group. And I started out by going actually to the archives. And one of the first archives I visited was the American Eugenics Society archive. Um, There were a number of archives that were helpful. So the Federal Council Council of Churches put out a statement on birth control and they listed all of their members who um, agreed with it or or who had put out a similar statement. So I was able to, you know, I was able to start getting a sense of which groups were the early liberalizers and, and which groups weren't through those materials. And the American Eugenics Society actually did the same thing. Um, but what I found from the archives was that I, it just, they told me nothing about the groups that weren't connected to the eugenics movement. And so I realized I needed to find a systematic source that would allow me to examine all of the groups in my sample. So initially I went to the groups who I didn't find anything about in um, the American Eugenics Society archive or the Federal Council of Churches, initially I started going to their periodicals and I started doing keyword searches. You know, first of all, we just had to do um, research into when that group said something about birth control and what that was and when we could kind of mark liberalization. And it, you might be surprised to find out that was really surprisingly difficult Um so just kind of nailing down the date of liberalization for the 31 groups took a great deal of time. Um, but once we had done that, and then once I started doing the, the periodical keyword searches, I realized that I needed the same systematic source and the same, I needed to use the same systematic method for every religious group in my samples. So ultimately I ended up studying their periodicals, doing keyword searches of the hard copies of their periodicals on a host of keywords from 1918, which gave me um, temperance and suffrage views on those issues, which were really important precursors to progressivism in the American religious field, according to many scholars. Um, 1924, 25 gave me their views on immigration restriction, um, as well as evolution because of the Scopes trial. Uh, I then looked at 1929 to 1931, which gave me their really detailed views on birth control and eugenics, because that was the height of those two movements. And then I researched 1935, 1945, 1955, and 1965 for each one of the groups to trace the later liberalization and also what the content of the progressive groups focus on birth control ended up being um, until the pill was developed in in the mid-1960s. Now, you mentioned eugenics is unfortunately sort of an inescapable part of birth control history in the United States. Um, So could you define sort of broadly what eugenics is and how it developed in the U.S. in the 20th century? Sure. So eugenics was what many people call a pseudoscience um, dedicated to the belief that heredity was the central and most important key to humanity's progress. So eugenicists believed that in the process of, they believed in the process of natural selection, but more importantly, they believed that 
the poor were poor because they had poor genes and the wealthy were wealthy because they had strong genes. Despite much evidence to the contrary, right, of the wealthy knowing or uh, say nobility with um, genetic problems because of inbreeding and things like that. In general, they just um, believed that you inherited your class position via your genes or that your genes were, were, were kind of tainted by that class position. That extended to race and ethnicity. As I said, they were really um, intersecting views as well as religion. Um, and so the biggest thing that eugenicists believed was that they needed to encourage bigger families on the part of desirable Americans. I'm going to focus on the American uh, side of the movement, but um, it is important to acknowledge it was the same movement that resulted in the Holocaust in Germany with different, you know, slightly different views and something that I'm, I'm actually examining that in detail now for some of my, my, my current work, but um, they wanted to encourage desirable people to have larger families, which they were not. They were uh, so desirable people in their view were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who were middle to upper middle class. And in general, those families were having about two kids by the beginning of the 20th century. Undesirables to them was anyone who wasn't a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and was um, poor. But in general, uh, their, their focus in the United States was on immigration and on the high fertility rate among immigrants, especially from um, Italy, Ireland, and Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. And so they uh, very much wanted to curtail immigrant fertility and encourage what they saw as native white Anglo-Saxon Protestants to have more kids. And, and so with that encouragement, that was called positive eugenics. So they basically just believed, you know, um, if they could have desirable people have more kids, they could uh, close the birth rate differential, which they were very much concerned about. Positive eugenics, ultimately, they realized just was not working. There was far too strong a cultural belief in the proper family size being small among white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And they just did not, they did not have more children the way they were being told to. So ultimately, pretty quickly within a decade, the eugenics movement in the United States shifted to focus from focusing on positive eugenics to focusing on negative eugenics. And negative eugenics includes things like sterilization of the unfit. And that um, was certainly extended to, um, you know, people who had serious mental illness, but it was also extended to people who were simply just poor um, and included involuntary sterilization. So if you were a woman, a poor black woman, for example, and ended up in the hospital pregnant, you could leave the hospital not even being told that you'd been um, sterilized uh, after you had your baby. Um, and there were laws that in many, many states that eugenicists worked on passing that would allow that to happen. Um, and then the, the uh, less dark side of negative eugenics was their campaign to promote birth control. And so they, they um, very much allied with Margaret Sanger and her and Planned Parenthood and focused on um, 
promoting birth control because under the premise that one of the reasons the birth rate differential was different between wasps and uh, non non wasps in the United States was because poor individuals had less access to physicians and you really could only get birth control information legally through a, a physician at this time. And so they promoted the legalization of dissemination of birth control methods and information in order to close the birth rate differential. And um, I should note, they, it seems that they were quite effective. Th those birth rate differentials did close within the next few decades. It's very interesting to me, just as an aside, this uh, negative versus positive eugenics. Uh, part of my own research right now is looking at uh, the Russian Orthodox Church uh, trying for a couple of decades now to get families to have more children, and it's just kind of not working. Um, so just, I think since the 20th century, it's been quite a hard sell really for anybody apart from, I guess, the quiverful movement. Yeah, I think um, one of the things I've been surprised by in relationship to my work is that even though the we're talking about something that occurred a century ago, you still hear a lot of groups make positive eugenic arguments and negative eugenic arguments, or you still, you still really do hear mm -hmm. a focus on fertility and on wanting more of certain kinds of babies and, and concerns about there being too many of other kinds of babies in all places in the world. Right. And it often is very still closely connected mm -hmm. to immigration. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, now, one of the novel aspects of this book is your systematic examination of, quote, which religious groups have supported American movements for social and religious reform throughout the past century and which have not. And you write, the lack of such an examination in existing research has meant that the connections between early religious activism and groups' current religious identities have been sketchy at best, which you've already mentioned a bit. Um, what were you able to reveal about such connections, particularly in relation to the development of a religious divide on the birth control issue? And what existing misconceptions were you able to reveal? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I looked at eight or nine precursor movements to see if any of them seemed to predict the group's openness to contraception early in the 20th century. So I looked at um, temperance or prohibition, um, suffrage, um, as, and I also looked at abolition. Those were the three major social movements at the time. And then I looked at a, a host of religious issues that kind of divided the American religious field later on, um, such as the fundamentalist modernist debate um, and other things. And I think for me, the most important thing I found in that analysis was that although many groups have a today have a deep identity as we've always been progressive. You know, we were abolitionists, and from that came everything else, for example. Um, so, for example, the Quakers, they have a very deep um, identity as uh, progressive religious Americans who were involved in abolition. Um, and that is true. But it, whether a group was involved in abolition or, or not does not seem to explain their views on eugenics or their views on, um, and ultimately their views on contraception. So groups that I, one of the things that I was very surprised by was that groups that were very 
proactive on the Negro question, in air quotes, um, say they were involved in anti-lynching campaigns or, or were abolitionists early on in um, the country's history, were, did not extrapolate that activism on behalf of Black Americans to being anti-eugenics if they were white. They just, there was a separation in, in terms of their understanding. And so, um, whereas groups that were seen as non-white or had identities as not as immigrants or as racially or ethnically marginal in some way, they all totally understood that eugenics was aimed at them and they rejected eugenics. But it really seems to have been, um, so basically what I found was that the history of those social movements was not what most people thought in terms of the important in terms of their identity. And um, that is with the exception of the social gospel movement, which was key in terms of explaining the groups that were what I call the early liberalizers. So the groups that went, they didn't just say, yes, birth control should be legal. They actually made official statements about the importance of legalization as opposed to just as opposed to just saying things that were approving about it. And it also explained the difference between the groups that were openly critical of eugenics. So they rejected the social gospel movement or they weren't a part of it at all. And they were also ethnically or racially marginal Um, versus the groups that were ethnically and racially marginal and critical of eugenics in their periodicals, but not critical of birth control reform. They tended to be the other, the social gospelers who were, they knew that the other big group of social gospelers were eugenicists and that they were liberalized on birth control for reasons that they would they didn't support. But so they remained silent on birth control because out of some sense of, it seems, that out of some sense of loyalty for their fellow social gospelers. So I, I learned a lot about the ways in which um, various social movements intersected with different religious groups in the United States. And ultimately, um, it was mostly a process of falsifying misconceptions about the idea, I think, that's been prominent for a long time, that certain groups have always been progressive in the United States. And that explains why they liberalized on things earlier, why they've been socially active. And And that's just not, once you actually systematically look at different groups and code them according to their views on different issues, um, it's, it's just not that clean. You mentioned earlier Margaret Sanger. So could we go back to her for a minute? Could you talk a bit about her role um, and why she's become so controversial uh, kind of in the modern age? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I don't, in the book, make any claims about whether Margaret Sanger was, um, you know, a heroine or, a vil- uh, you know, an evil person. Um, <laughs> I... And and what I the reason I did research on Margaret Sanger was to find out if connections with her or the American Birth Control League explained why some groups liberalized and others did not. And what I found was that there were just very few connections between American religious groups and Margaret Sanger. She really um, she was well known for not liking religion. Um, And she did not try to lobby any religious group actively. And what I found was that the connections between the American religious groups that liberalized on birth control 
were much stronger between the eugenics movement and the American Eugenics Society actively promoted ties between themselves and um, major religious groups that they liked. Um, and that Margaret Sanger and the American Birth Control League did not. Um, but that was made possible because the connections between the American Birth Control League and the Amer American Eugenic Society were so strong that essentially the American Eugenic Society took over Margaret Sanger's campaign to make birth control accessible to everyone for eugenicist reasons. Um, and, and that's how the both eugenics and the support for birth control form got out into the American religious field. Um, as for Sanger, um, you know, I cannot answer the question of whether her support for eugenics was real and genuine or whether it was just expedience. Um, but I can tell you that the subtitle of one of the issues of birth control review was to create a race of thoroughbreds. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and, and I can also say that in terms of evidence, the American Birth Control League and the American Eugenic Society went through a series of very serious talks about merging in the late 1920s and early 1930s, because their um, agendas were so similar. They ultimately decided not to because members of the American Eugenics Society were seen as more conservative than supporters of the American Birth Control League and anti-feminist. And they felt that by having separate organizations, they would be more effective at promoting birth control than if they had merged and, and if the American Eugenics Society was thereby tainted with feminism. Um, so you also kind of alluded to this already, but just to um, sort of cement the history a little more, when does this period of liberalization in general among American religious groups begin um, and how does it spread? Yeah, um, actually, I was really surprised by the fact that the liberalization period, the early liberalization period was incredibly short and um, tight. And so between 1929 and 1931, nine of America's most prominent religious groups really suddenly liberalized on birth control. So you can find statements from less than 10 years prior to that, where they were saying birth control is evil. We should not be using it. It's creating, um, you know, this negative eugenic situation. Um, they called it race suicide. Uh, by 1929, there was a very clear shift, and that was a, a result of Sanger and the American Eugenics Society promoting birth control. Um, and that liberalization period ended for almost every group by 1931. Only the Protestant Episcopal Church, who I'm calling an early liberalizer, liberalized officially later than that. That was 1934, but that was a, a result of um, some administrative issues in terms of when their actual conferences were held. It was, they were still already liberalizing by 1931. Um, and then I found that basically there was really a period of quiet um, from extending really um, through the end of World War II, where, and that's a story also about the decline of the eugenics movement in the United States. And I wouldn't, I don't, I actually don't think it's, it should be called a decline. It's really about them going underground, um, going underground in, in my own discipline and in disciplines very closely related to sociology, which is something I can talk about later. But basically they realized that um, 
eugenics was being used in a potentially problematic way with Hitler. And um, they folded almost all open eugenics uh, organizations and publications either changed their name or simply folded it. But they, but the leaders became leaders of other, usually more, I call whitewashed, which is completely ironic, um, organizations that were seen as more academic. Um, so I could get into that, but that's not actually your question, which was, how did it spread? Um, the groups that liberalized early were all very closely connected with the American Eugenic Society. Um, so the American Eugenics Society had uh, competitions for the best sermon on eugenics in 19, uh, th- at three points, 1926, 28, and, and 30, I believe, or it might, the, the, I, might, I might be off with the years there that I found in the archives. Um, they had a committee for cooperation with clergymen where they had uh, certain religious groups had sent representatives. And so they were really actively disseminating their views and they, they talked about it. They wa- they saw that the good people were in the churches and they wanted the good people to get their message of eugenics. And by churches, they meant Protestant churches um, and certain kinds of Protestant churches. Um, and then I found that after World War II, many of the religious groups that had liberalized early remembered or knew that they were in favor of contraception. I think mainly because their official statements were on the books, Um, but they continued to basically be what I call the, or become the religious promoters of contraception. And so they were the folks liberal uh, lobbying for birth control to be disseminated to other countries in the world that um, were Brown and poor and, um, that was really at the height of concerns about population explosion. And that became the focus of their um, social activism well, well through the 1960s. Um, at the same time, the groups that had not been supporters of eugenics or promoters of contraception early, they also all liberalized. Almost all of them liberalized by the mid-1960s. They just did so in a really different fashion than the groups that liberalized early. And so when they did so, they tended to do so in relationship to their flocks. So is it okay for a good, um, you know, I'm trying to think of a group that didn't liberalize early, a good Southern Baptist to use birth control. And they said, yeah, okay, it's, it's okay. You know, it's between, or they sometimes they would say it's between you and God. Um, but they would say it was fine. As opposed to the groups that liberalized early, they were very much about contraceptive and and then later on abortion rights. Uh, could you talk about some of the exegetical strategies that the clergy, you mentioned, for example, the sermon competition that they used to demonstrate the biblical grounds for their position? Yeah, so I actually call it... Um, a eugenic gospel. And I was really stunned by this extent to which, and I was really pushed by some reviewers early on in the project about whether this was simply expedient on the part of these religious groups. You know, they thought birth control was a good thing. They were okay with eugenics. So they just, they pushed both and they often pushed both in the same thing. Or did they deeply believe in eugenics? 
And from many, many, many of the quotes I have, there's this very powerful, so the social gospel movement um, believed that humans needed to fix the mess they made of earth before Jesus would return or the Messiah would return. Actually, Reformed Jews were active in the social gospel movement as well. So it wasn't just Christians. Um, And a key part of that fixing of society involved eradicating poverty, advocating for peace, um, you know, anti-war activities and um, immigration, you know, help with, with immigrant communities. So very progressive things. But it, it, it created a natural um, place where eugenics sentiment could flourish. And so, as I said, not all of the social gospelers were eugenicists. There were really two camps. But the, but the white, wealthy social gospelers, all of them embraced eugenics. And um, it became, they would say things like, um, eugenics is the, is the way, with, you know, via the church, we will save the earth and you know, uh, and, and, and kingdom and, and, you know, the, and what is it to say? The kingdom of heaven will arrive on earth. So they really believed that eugenics and improving the heredity, um, hereditary situation of the human race was something religious groups could, could and should do. Um, and it was very biblically discussed in their periodicals. And this next question might be simultaneously very simple and kind of complex because it's a kind of chicken and egg question. But to what degree did a belief in eugenics reinforce these existing attitudes around race and ethnicity in the pro-birth control groups? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the term that was really, I think, that captured these ideas that was used at the time was called was race suicide. I, I think I mentioned it earlier. And it was really an incredibly intentionally created and used term because it was used to conjure up the idea that by choosing to have only two children, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were engaging in race suicide, i.e. the suicide of the white race because they were going to be overtaken by non-whites who were having more babies. So this is what race suicide meant. Um, That being said, Eugenicists often use the word race in an intentionally slippery way so that if they were called on that, they could often say, no, we're talking about the human race, right? Not just the white race. But um, when it came to race suicide, it was really clear that it was really about um, white people not having enough babies. And that's exactly how they talked about it. Um, And it was in comparison to the perceived threat of immigrants Um, the poor and people of color. And it was very much connected to voters and voting rights. This is the same time that immigrants were um, actually able to get some electoral power in major cities in the United States. It's the same time that many states shifted a lot of the economic and political resources to the state level, which would remain in the hands of um, non-immigrants and wealthier uh, folks in the suburbs. 
right? It's why we have a lot of the um, electoral relationships that we have today. It's about this time in American history. Um, so, you know, one of your questions was how did the concept of race suicide develop and become rooted in eugenics, eugenicist rhetoric? I, eugenics was around since the beginning of the 20th century. Um, Francis Galton published an article in the American Journal of Sociology, I believe in 1904 or 1905. Um, Roosevelt talked about race suicide in 1908. So these things were in the ether, you know, but, you know, for 20 years before the movement really focused on contraception. Um, but I don't think it was ever not rooted in a white supremacist concern about there not being enough white babies. Which denominations were on the front lines of the opposition? How did they push back? Hmm. Not surprisingly, the groups that um, were on the front lines of the opposition were the groups who were simultaneously most likely to be targeted by eugenics but also had more resources um, in terms of the class, right? And that's why I think about this. That, that's partly where the complex religion argument comes from. You really do have to think about the intersection of class and race and ethnicity and religion in order to understand um, why some groups remained silent and why, and what, whereas others were openly critical. And so I found actually there were two very, very different groups of critics. Now, the first group of critics is kind of the obvious group. They were the targets of eugenics. So the Roman Catholic Church was, uh, at that point, just infamous for its um, anti-Sanger sentiment and its uh, anti-birth control activism. And that's something, but it came from a fear of eugenics and eugenics um, legislation, which they correctly interpreted and understood to be very anti-Catholic. And it wasn't like they had to read between the lines. I should say so many of the things that the pro-birth control folks said were deeply anti-Catholic and and or anti-Semitic. And so although the anti-Semitism was complicated in the United States eugenics movement in a way that it was not complicated in Germany, but I I can talk about that also if we have time. but so the Roman Catholic Church, Orthodox, conservative, uh, and conservative Jews were openly um, critical of birth control reform and the eugenics movement. The other group that was openly critical of birth control reform, though, was not, was not critical of birth control reform because they were critical of white supremacy. They were actually white groups in, in the South benefiting from Jim Crow. So the Southern Baptists, the Presbyterian Church in the United States, and the Methodist Episcopal Church South. So white Southerners, they rejected birth control not because they were anti-eugenics, but they rejected birth control because they did not, they, as they put it, they did not believe in race suicide. They didn't have a problem with low birth rates among whites in the South. And they also had the advantage of Jim Crow, which did not exist in the North. So whereas Northern whites were concerned about their voting power 
in relationship to immigrate immigrants, Southern whites were very secure in their voting power because they had basically, you know, disenfranchised blacks after reconstruction. And so they were anti-birth control, but for, um, but because they were secure, because they said, we don't want to make birth control widely accessible. We have high white birth rates. We're fine. You know, let's stay that way. And so there, you had some very strange bedfellows in the same cells, um, such as this very anti-Catholic, for example, Southern Baptist convention, uh, agreeing with the Roman Catholic church about that this birth control agitation was, was, um, you know, evil as, as they would put it. Excuse me. Uh, now, there's also other groups. There's the middle group, which was the denominations that supported birth control but didn't make strong statements, and then the silent group that didn't align with anybody. Um, so, could you talk about the, those denominations and sort of what their motivations were and how they expressed themselves if they did? Sure. So, the group um, that supported birth control but didn't make that official, I call them the unofficial liberalizers. What's interesting about them is mm-hmm they largely disappear over the next 40 years. And so I think that does show some of the power of comparative historical analysis, because if I didn't start at the beginning and, and, you know, examine these group statements early on, I would have actually lost that whole cell of denominations because they ultimately merged. Almost all of them merged with early liberalizers. Um, and became the religious promoters of contraception. But they did not support contraception officially early on because they were not the social gospelers. Um, in con- and they just didn't think, they said things like, um, they didn't believe it was their religious duty to make social changes. So they very much um, were of the, the way to Jesus is through individual salvation. And so they believed it was Christians' responsibility to, you know, proselytize and convert individuals to their personal walk with Jesus. They and that and thereby society would become reformed. Um, they did not believe in social activism as part of a religious duty. So that that was those groups in the cell. Ultimately, they merged with um, groups that were strong social gospelers and who were the promoters of contraception. And they seemed that their their reticence on social issues seems to have largely gone away. Um, or faded. But the other group, and I mentioned this in relationship to the social gospel as well, uh, a much larger group actually remained silent during this time. About, um, I would say, almost a third of my denominations in my sample did not say anything about birth control. Those were the racially and ethnically marginal groups who were social gospelers. So the one that really sticks out as a primary example of those groups would be the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. It's one of the oldest African-American denominations in the country, very um, social gospel oriented, very much believe in the religious importance of improving society. And of course, still does. Um, But aware that the birth control campaign was coming from circles that they did not support and who did, you know, did not support or respect them, right, as, as humans. And so they just remained silent on birth control, as did many other more recent immigrant groups like the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod groups that said things like um, we are American, right? They had to like assert their Americanness in their periodical because they were marginal. 
Um, for those groups that changed their stances from anti to pro-birth control, how and why did this occur? Um, we really have to talk about two separate periods to answer that question. Are you mm-hmm. talking about between 1920 and 1930 or between 1935 and 1965? Uh, the latter, the latter. Okay. Yeah. Because between 1920 and 1930, the groups that changed their positions, it's where they did. So it seems strictly because of lobbying on the part of the eugenics society and eugenics movement. Mm-hmm. Later on the groups that changed, um, they seemed they seem to have done so um, largely in response to public sentiment. And so they would say things like 90% of Americans think contraception is okay. Um, you know, and it turns out like we're okay with it as well. It's something that people have to, to use in good conscience, you know, in their own faith. Right. So when they changed, they changed very much in relationship to the idea of do humans have the, the right and responsibility to use the powers of reason that if you believe in God, that God certainly gave humans um, and thereby be intentional about their fertility or is it human's responsibility to, to take any child that God gives them, right? And so almost all of the American religious groups with the exception of the Roman Catholic Church and that I studied in detail previously, as well as the Russian Orthodox Church, um, ultimately did just say, it's fine for you to use it. And they, but they were doing so strictly speaking to their believers. Right. Uh, now, how would you describe the legacy of the eugenicist movement in the contemporary American religious landscape? I was struck Um, one day I was walking home from campus pre pandemic, (laughs) um, to my house (laughs) across the the river from, um, Penn. And I walked by a, um, Unitarian Universalist church and it had a banner outside that said black lives matter. This was prior to the pandemic and the recent black lives matter movement. And it was a rainbow flag. And I wanted, I, I wanted to get a really good picture of this. It was this beautiful, obviously very wealthy congregation church with this very, um, you know, in your face, social justice and equality frame. And what struck me was that these were the groups who were the most openly eugenicist in the thirties. And one of my arguments that I make in the book is that I think this, the liberalization on contraception really created an identity among the groups that liberalized early, that they were the leaders, the sexual religious progressives. And they, and I have evidence of them saying things like we were the first to promote contraception. We are, it's our responsibility to continue to work for women's rights or, um, you know, we've been, arguing for women's rights to choose for, for 40 years or, and so, um, basically I think it created an identity, uh, that this group supports progressive causes in general, but at the same time, there is an amnesia about why. And so, um, 
I guess what my book does more than anything is just complicate people's understanding of what they've understood as progressive. And um, that's partly where I think many, when I said, I think many people will find this shocking. I think many of the religious groups that are, um, I guess, for lack of a better word, implicated in early contraception reform, I think there will be a reckoning um, about why. Yeah, and it's, I mean, what sort of occurred to me, and I think you're kind of saying the same thing, is that this idea of this is a church that is committed to the social gospel or social social justice that has remained, but what that means has significantly changed. Yes. And and it also that it's just incredibly, I hate, you know, I hate to use a, a cop-out, but um, it's incredibly complicated. So these are the same, they were eugenicists. They were really, really, really um anti-immigrant and very concerned about race suicide but these same groups were also in the forefront of um what they saw as kind of lifting up the negro so they were really active in anti-lynching campaigns early on they were very active in um supporting the NAACP they were very these are northeastern groups who were incredibly comfortable critiquing the racism of whites in the South, right? Even right. though they had their own forms of racism that they had, uh, that they were not being called on by any other major groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think this is probably one of these uh, reckonings that needs to happen, right? And you know, we're recording this July 23rd, 2020. So it's quite an appropriate time to be having yeah. these conversations. Um, so is there anything that you'd say contemporary religious groups can learn or take away from the history of this movement? Yeah, I think um, it's really important to accept that this country has a deep-seated history of racism Racism that is certainly most virulent in relationship to African-Americans, but that has extended to many groups and that it is important not only to know what a particular group's stances are, but it's also important to know where those stances came from and, um, I guess it's also in some ways you have to be able to defend the beliefs you promote on the basis of, if you really are someone who wants to say promote equality or social justice, um, sometimes those things look different over the course of centuries. And certainly eugenicists really, they thought they were progressive. They thought that they were on the right side of history. Um, and I think th- it may be one of the most astonishing stories in the sense that because the eugenics movement just went so underground so quickly that so many religious groups, I think largely through um, generational replacement and leadership evolution, 
they lost, they, they, they don't know why they liberalized on contraception and created and had identities as, as religious sexual progressives. But it is interesting and in some ways I think shocking to recognize that only the groups who were the early liberalizers on contraception support same-sex marriage today. Not all, not all of them, but but there is a, an incredibly strong correlation in terms of this uh, having an identity of, as sexual and religious progressives that comes from the connections between contraception and eugenics. I don't know that that's a really uh, inspiring or positive thing for religious groups to hear, but that's unfortunately <laughs> where I am. Uh, now, to, to wrap up our conversation, could you tell us a bit about what you're working on now? Sure. Um, I'm doing, I'm working on a whole bunch of different things. So I'm really excited. I got a grant from the National Science Foundation, along with Dr. Michelle Margolis, who's also a Penn professor. She's a political scientist. And we are mm-hmm. studying the influence of religion on the 2020 election with the general social survey. So we were able to add a module of lots of detailed religious questions, including things about white Christian nationalism um, and other views about kind of just is the U.S. a Christian nation? And is that why people would support Donald Trump um, on the general social survey, as well as the American national elections uh, study, which will be so it's a series of both cross-sectional and panel surveys that we'll have access to to analyze. Um, That's obviously contemporary and a completely different method than I usually do in my research. Um, Or, I I mean, I've often used survey research, but it's um, very different from birth control battles, for sure. Um, And I'm also working on, because in order to write birth control battles, I had to create this very um, large archive of American religious groups' views over more than 50 years, I realized they had an opportunity to create just a, in general, an, a religious archive. And so I'm actually employing um, many undergraduate research assistants this summer to transcribe all of the articles that I gathered on just a host of issues over, between 1918 and 1965 um, that I think will be useful for on hundreds of topics why religious groups differ on, differed on different um, issues. And so, for example, with that, I'm looking at um, which groups supported Hitler in 1935 and how that is or is not related to their support for eugenics and other um, white supremacist views. I'm looking uh, at who promoted crime and juvenile delinquency reform and in what ways and how that was connected to eugenics. Um, I have a paper that I'm working on about which I was, I really, um, in the course of this research, I was just struck by the fact that I could predict groups views on segregation circa 1955 based on what I knew about what they thought in 1930. And so I, I'm working on a paper on kind of what I'm calling the, just the, the social reproduction of race of racialized views in the sense that these groups, obviously, you know, it's different people, it's different generations. And yet I can, I could predict whether they would be pro or anti-segregation based on what they said, not even in 1930, but in, the, in 1918 and how 
Um, we often, I think as sociologists, we emphasize the social construction of race. And I think that can be an, an, an unfortunate uh, consequence of that can be that it's easy for people to, to think that therefore it's much more malleable than it is. Um, so those are some of the things I'm doing with the Religion Archive um, project. And then I just recently got a grant from Penn to begin digitizing the censuses of American religious bodies, which are these incredible sources of quantitative data from 1906, 1916, 1926, and 1936, um, which have data uh, on every American religious congregation during those years, um, including their financial resources, the number of members, um, the racial and ethnic background, the languages spoken. So it's this incredible wealth of data that gives me, that will ultimately give me a beginning to kind of systematically demonstrate the amount of religious inequality in the United States and, and where it was greater and where it was, um, you know, where perhaps it was not as significant. And also to demonstrate that, you know, sociologists often fight a battle just convincing Americans that actually it's not a complete meritocracy in this country, that the, nothing predicts your, your outcome and your class outcome better than where you began, right? But that that is also really deeply wrapped up in religion and now, now today as well as being non-religious. Um, and so I'm working on a lot of things at once while I'm also, um, well, previously before the summer was dealing with, um, you know, like everybody with children, remote schooling and <laughs> and also taking my classes mm-hmm. online. So, yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're really in the business of telling hard truths, which is a difficult but important place to be. Yeah. I don't know that I ever um, would have thought that this is where I would be when I started my career as a sociologist 20 years ago. But um, I think follow the data. Sometimes that's where you end up, I guess. Uh, Today, I've been speaking with Dr. Melissa J. Wild about birth control battles, how race and class divided American religion. Uh, Birth control battles is now available from the University of California Press. Dr. Wild, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you for doing this important research. Oh, thank you so much, Diana. It's been a pleasure.